0: hello i'm jamie sanchez and i actually bought a comic i'm lauren fates and i think i'm just
1: gonna check the fridge one more time are you ready for the beat i'm ready for the beat
0: welcome back for another episode of the bebop beat There's not many more of these, so we're so excited to talk to you today about the Netflix comic. Yes, that's right. We have Dan Waters with us today, writer of issue one, two, three, and four of the Cowboy Bebop comic. But before we get there today, Lauren, you have a little bit of news for us? Yeah,
1: not exactly news so much as listener mail, fan mail, if you will, listener. Dave, a.k.a. a new genre itself on Instagram, kind of flexed on us, sent us an email to say that he got his hands on the Super Groupies Cowboy Bebop watch. He sent us several beautiful photos that we will share on Twitter and potentially Insta. And dang, Jamie, this watch just looks really good. If he wanted to make me jealous, he succeeded. It's way cooler than I thought it was going to be.
0: Yeah, I caught the photos too. And I really thought that the photography that he shared with us looked like way more professional and beautiful than the actual product shots that Super Groupies had for the watch.
1: Yeah, isn't that weird? He's caught some detail, namely the specific blue color of the watch But also the mechanisms, I will have to ask him myself, but in the center of the watch, there's sort of a outer space scape, like some stars, and it almost looks like that part of the watch might move. I did not suspect that from the original pictures. Oh, I want this thing so bad. (laughs) No, I don't. I have a tiny wrist and watches look stupid on me,
0: but... I would like to have it just to look at. To be fair, I think like Rolex style watches are still a little gaudy. And yes, I have a tiny child size wrist. This would never look good on this arm. But oh man, it is such a real beauty. And I'm so glad that it's out there and people can enjoy it now. It also has a light up
1: digital portion. So if you're not super big on reading time, the classic hands way, you can just flip on the light and see the time digital as well. And that second hand might even glow in the dark. And things that glow in the dark, that's an auto-buy for me. I love that gimmick. Anyway, speaking of Cowboy Bebop things you can buy, today's episode is not about the live-action show or the anime specifically, it's about the comic book tie-in from Titan Comics. If you can't afford a Super groovy's Rolex-style watch, I bet you could find the money in the couch for the $3.99 premiere issue of this series.
0: As for my cold open today, this is actually my first comic I've ever purchased. I did buy it digitally, but I do intend to purchase the compendium when it's released this summer. And this is saying a lot, Lauren. I come from a world of manga. (laughs) We read right to left.
1: I don't read a lot of
0: comics myself.
1: I'm familiar, obviously, with a lot of comic book characters, but when it comes to actually going to your local shop and getting like a weekly box of things that they pull for you, I've never been a part of that culture. The only other series I follow regularly is Saga, which amazingly times perfectly with this episode because Saga is coming back the week we're recording this too. Cowboy Bebop and Saga, the only two things I read back in one week. (laughs) This piece is written by Dan Waters, who, like we mentioned, is our guest later in this episode. And the artist is Lamar Matherin, and we definitely recommend following him on Instagram, where he constantly posts pictures of upcoming issues and the things he's working on for Bebop. Very cool.
0: So today's discussion will be strictly about issue one, which in our timeline dropped just two days ago. We had the chance to read this and really think about it for these two days And we're recording right now, so uh, (laughs) I'm sure our thoughts will evolve over the next week or two. I might want to reread later, but the next issues won't be dropping until subsequent months from now. Indeed. This issue
1: is titled Supernova Swing Part One, and we do have it confirmed that this four-story arc is a one-off. That's all there's going to be. So I don't think you have to worry about how many of these will I have to buy? What kind of investment is it? It's a story that has a clear beginning and end, which is great. Also, shout out to my local comic shop, Dark Tower Comics, which is right across the street from where I live. They held this issue for me, you know, behind the desk with my name on it, and they kind of laughed. I think I was probably the only one who reserved it. The thing is, Jamie, I genuinely liked this story. For as lukewarm as I was on the prequel novel, it had its ups and downs. I loved this, and I hope more people will reserve it. I was shocked by how much I enjoyed myself.
0: I would agree with you. Uh, this first issue clearly lays the groundwork for the rest of what would be considered maybe a standalone anime episode. It's the first quarter of a story, right? And it gets the whole setting mapped out for us. We've got a bounty that's introduced, a couple of new characters, and you know our basic crew just hanging out, starving. Wondering when their next break will be. Before we go further, we should stress that
1: there will be spoilers throughout this entire episode. We decided we're comfortable doing spoilers for this one because it is the intro of a story. It's a lot of setup, and what comes after is going to be a surprise to us all. It's going to be after our podcast is over. So if you don't want to hear story details, please turn off your pod listener and come back after you've purchased this volume.
0: So when it comes to illustration or graphics, I am a very, very picky person. Uh, as a graphic designer myself, I find the use of color and tone and, and just kind of texture interesting, right? That actually contributes to stories that I read. I saw all the variants first, all the variant covers, and I was kind of confused as to like what the style of this was actually going to be. I don't know if you felt that way, Lauren but. Uh, There were maybe two or three covers that I was kind of attracted to, and I thought maybe, wow, this is going to be the story's entire texture and tone. That is not the case. (laughs) In fact, I don't think any of the variant covers uh, actually capture what's inside the first couple pages.
1: No, and it's funny that you mention how you're such a manga consumer, because I think the variant covers are a very Western comics tradition. It is... A thing that happens pretty often that a bunch of different artists get tapped for collectible different styles. So maybe you spent the four bucks on this one, but you could spend another four bucks to get that green cover or another four bucks for that Julia picture. I get why they do it, but you're right. It's not Lamar Matherin style. To that point, Once Lamar himself started leaking images from his work, I was a little hesitant. These are not images from the anime, but they're also not images of John Cho and Daniela Pineda. The versions of Spike, Faye, and Jet that we see within these pages, it's like another version, yet another reimagining.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you in that their likenesses are perhaps maybe more mapped to what Lamar does regularly. You know, maybe this is an artistic style or representation. I'm not familiar so much with his work, so uh, beats me. I don't want to make assumptions about that, but you're right. We don't get an identical representation of John Cho in this comic. I would also say that there's not as much polish as I would normally enjoy in my graphic novels or manga. I tend to like very clean lines, and this is very rough and sketchy. It's got an ad hoc or improvised feel, which goes well with like the bebop theme overall. I also found its bold use of jazzy colors a lot of fun, but also, again, a little rough for my liking. I actually
1: liked it way more than I expected it to. The sketchier and rougher it got, the more I bought into the action sequences or the frenetic energy of chasing after a bounty. I think this was a success for me. I oddly compare this style to the video game Disco Elysium. I don't know if you've played it. I don't know if the people at Titan Comics have played it, but the monochromatic characters And the heavy use of black lines, and also how images are often obscured by shadow or by rain. I very much felt a a tie in with that very, very good video game that I love so much. The energy of it, not just the art style, but the tone of like contemplation or sort of slogging along or pausing, all very disco Elysium to me, but also very bebop. We cover this in our interview coming up, but one of the strong points of this writing for me was that we take a lot of time to just sit and think and feel with some of these characters that we just weren't getting in the Netflix live action.
0: I will say that the use of heavy shadow, big block contrast kind of uh, cutaways, and the interest in small lighting texture and detail, like the glow of lights and the technical instruments, Those all really spoke to me. They added like a little bit of grit or personality in the scene itself. So I appreciated those. But when it came to the portraits of the characters themselves, uh, yeah, it got a little tough for me to dig into it. However, the long shots all look great. All the settings look great. Anything that kind of pulls away, like you see behind a street lamp and you're looking down upon our characters who are standing in the street. I almost like envisioned our original anime characters in these moments. There's a lot of the
1: anime in this for me too, specifically the way Spike is written. And not to get too grim, but his view on death and sort of how he confronts fights. I thought it was very anime true. I was very happy with that. One stylistic choice that reminded me of The manga, specifically the Cowboy Bebop manga, is how this book opens. Page one gives us this sort of summary of what a bounty hunter is, very, very broad strokes, where we are in space and time, and four little profile pictures of our main characters. They did that exact same thing in the manga. Like, this is Spike, this is Faye, this is who is important in
0: this issue. So we open this issue in a casino. We see our crew staking out a bounty at a craps table, I believe, and they are very clearly working well together. So there's an established kind of storyline. I get the sense that this issue takes place after maybe episode six or seven in the live action.
1: Yes, which is interesting. You'll hear more about this later when we talk to Dan. But apparently Dan didn't have access to the entire Netflix timeline. So where it gets positioned later in the series may just be a coincidence. But I agree, this is a well-established trio of bounty hunters where everyone sort of knows their job. The first words in this comic, in this casino, are the lyrics to Tank. Faye gets a poker chip from the guy next to her she notices someone in the doorway and these various people positioned throughout Curtain Casino start saying, I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody and the stuff together. I can't decide if I think it's cheesy or the best thing I've ever read.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I thought that it was really fun to kind of put these words in the mouths of the people at the casino as opposed to our introductory song, right? Like, it could have just been the jazz band saying all of these lines, or it could have just been one person. But to actually hear these lines uttered by real people in the bebop world was just kind of like, I was both taken aback and really excited about it.
1: Yeah, just the audacity. I was like, I admire a strong choice. <laughs> <laughs> so Faye locks in that the bounty is this one specific guy, Spike. Spike takes note that a lot of people around the casino are involved, but they're just a distraction. Spike gets wrapped up in a hand-to-hand fight with some thugs, including a guy I just love who's wearing heart-shaped sunglasses. What an icon. Well, Faye pursues our main baddie. There are lots of explosions, and I have to imagine people died here But as is Cowboy Bebop tradition, we don't take any time to worry about those people. We're just part of the
0: chase. Faye chases our bounty up to the eighth floor, where we learn that he's not concerned about her in the least. She tries to shoot her gun, and that fails. And somehow he gets this magical safe open in time. Just very dashing, daring, all of that good stuff. And I realize we have a character that reminds me so much of Gentle Criminal from my Hero Academia. I don't know if you're a My Hero Academia fan, Lauren, but Gentle was probably one of the most favorite editions of mine in the villain world. He's just a, a man who wants what he wants, but he won't like necessarily put other people down or harm them in order to get it. He's a gentleman.
1: Well, this guy whose name we find out is Melville he doesn't have to really get his hands dirty. Everything around him seems to be working in his favor. The safe is faulty. The tracer Faye puts on him is faulty. Everything just absolutely sucks for Faye. And the dice rolls go in favor of this dude. And we get to the point really quickly that that's maybe not a coincidence. By the way, before we jump ahead out of this scene, we were talking about this a little bit off mic, but I find Faye to be drawn very sexy in a couple of these panels. What's weird about that, why it's worthy of commentary, is that she's wearing the exact same hotly contested outfit from the Netflix. It's just hemmed a little bit differently. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. She's showing a little bit More tummy below her top. The neckline of her shirt dips a little bit lower. It does make me wonder if the Netflix costume could have been tweaked ever so slightly to appeal more to anime fans. But, Jamie, when I said this to you, you were like, no, there was no way to win this one.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. Uh, So, there's a concept in anime, and I love to introduce it. It's called absolute territory. And it's that space between the top of the thigh high and the bottom of the skirt. And Netflix made the distinct decision to place black colored tights on absolute territory. And that is a (laughs) no-go. I think even just that little bit uh, was enough to rile fans. I thought
1: people liked tights, though. The fact that there's that seam going up the back of face
0: tights, I thought that did it for people. I guess I'm wrong. Uh, no, it's got to be bearskin. Absolute territory is uh, just traditionally nothing there.
1: Well, I do like the lanky art style shown in this scene, even if it isn't kind to the Netflix costume results. Everyone's legs are like distortedly long, which I guess does give more room for absolute territory, as you say. But very similarly to how sometimes Sailor Moon is drawn, there's Extra long legs, extra long limbs. It reminds me of Spike Spiegel in the anime and the way he sort of flailingly runs and the fluid way he moves. I think it's captured really well in this distorted art style here in a way that live action just can't capture. I guess the point I'm driving at is that once again a medium that is not live actors is for me doing a better job of being bebop than what we got on TV.
0: This is also a very interesting situation cuz we're reading a comic based on a live action that was adapted from an anime. Like this has already gone through three different interpretations, uh also f- between the lens of a Japanese perspective on western culture and then rehashed by Western creators. So I love the interplay. I love that we're having this exchange of ideas. I always enjoy a new injection of energy into the Cowboy Bebop franchise. And I think I get what you're saying here, Lauren, about gravitating towards the premise of this comic more so than the live action itself.
1: Interestingly, this comic and the prequel novel were from the same company. Titan Comics and Titan Books, same parent entity. So having all of these spinoffs was part of one sort of marketing strategy.
0: So our crew reconvenes on the bebop and there's the usual jokes about not having any food. Spike turns Big Shot on and there's this really cute moment where we're introduced to Ayn. And I absolutely adore this little gestural drawing of Ayn on Spike's lap. I want it hung up in my house. (laughs) Yeah, them looking like they have a bond is so
1: precious. There's a lot to like in this scene. Punch, I feel, is drawn almost identically to the anime, too. Like, line
0: for line, that's anime punch. Agreed, yeah. Uh, I will say that we still get some close-up shots of our characters' faces, but towards the end of the scene, we have more faraway shots, and it feels like at home on Anime Bebop. Jet
1: mentions his police contact. I at first assumed this was Chalmers to make a Netflix connection, but it isn't. We learn later that it's a man by the name of Fusao, who is, I guess, an original character for these comics.
0: I was hoping for Bob. I don't know why I keep rooting for Bob. He's just, please, Bob, <laughs> be alive in this live action version.
1: Bob is season two of the Bebop Beats Linda. <laughs> <Like> Bob <laughs> is who we're going to root for now, now that we've seen where Linda went in the show. Bob is the new Linda for sure. So Melville the Thief stole 300 million Wulongs from the casino. This boosts his bounty up to 80 million. And maybe I'm too in the weeds here, but I think this gives us some really interesting information about like the cost benefit ratio of bounty hunting. Like he stole 300 million, so bounty hunters will give you 80 million. Like how much are we willing to add on to the sunk cost here to get this guy back? It's a lot. According to Punch and Judy, rumor has it that Melville has a probability vest that all of that luck from the encounter with Faye maybe wasn't luck after all. Maybe some sort of sci-fi technology is at play here. And Jamie, I love probability-based characters, whether it's Longshot or Domino or the Scarlet Witch. If I could choose a superpower I've said for years that's the superpower I would choose. Luck is such an integral part of the Cowboy Bebop story. I'm shocked it took this long to bring this concept in. And I just love it. Like they wrote catnip for me. They could not have brought in a concept that I specifically was more
0: attracted to. In a world where space travel is possible through the astral gates and we have data dogs, uh, I'm not certain if I'm on board with probability vests. Uh, It seems pretty out there, and it very much feels like an idea from the world of Western comics. I think this is a lot why I am not a comics reader in general. I tend to like my stories rooted firmly in reality in many cases, uh, though Cowboy Bebop is my favorite story and it is not. (laughs) This felt a little out there for me, but I'm willing to go along for the ride.
1: Okay, A, science fiction can be out there. We can stretch technology and science with our imaginations in the genre. But my second point is, I think they leave it ambiguous. As much as they kind of tease this is exactly why this man is successful. There was this syndicate research project that Melville stole and they really want the reader to get on board. Like, yes, a probability vest is literally what's happening. I think there's a chance that that's not true. And I think that is left open for interpretation to see what
0: happens in future issues. I get that sense, too. I'll go along with the ride. I think that this is an interesting premise regardless. Uh, I just am also like spinning my wheels. If we're throwing in probability in the idea of like quantum physics, I think all bets are off.
1: It does feel a little bit like when time travel was introduced in Harry Potter. There's always a point in a fantasy story where you're like, oh, well, now anything could happen. I just don't necessarily mind it. We think for one moment that maybe Faye's luck is working out. Her tracer comes back online, but nope, Melville is not being tracked at all. He ditches the device and leads our crew to a place where I guess we can assume the bounty has been, but he is not right now. They take Ayn to room 3102 at a local motel, and even though Ayn doesn't have much to do in terms of being a super slick data dog. I'm just happy that he's along for the ride. We watched him get abandoned (laughs) in the live action, so I'm happy that he's a cherished member of the crew here.
0: He also has an opportunity to meet another dog named Zizi, and this was adorable. I thought this was a really great tie-in from a writing perspective for Jet to further talk to neighbors who may be seeing Melville around. So Jet's doing his cop investigation thing, and he meets a new character, Abigail, who's vouching for Melville's character. You know, she says, he's helped me with groceries. I think he's a nice guy. And anybody who likes dogs, you know, that has to be an indicator of their character. They can't be terrible people.
1: This whole series of events makes me really happy because everybody in this Motel or maybe apartment complex, whatever it's supposed to be. It's just a bunch of weirdos. We meet this like leather daddy guy who takes up a large portion of a panel, and Faye is just so frustrated with how weird everyone here is. I like when humans are allowed to be odd. I think the real world is full of weirdos, and if you were to just go knock on doors, you would meet a bunch of strange people. This is a very truthful moment for me. Also, shout out to Faye for being, I think, very accurate to her anime self here. She does suggest that a probability vest is probably way more valuable than the bounty would ever be. I'm imagining that Lucille Bluth gif, like, good for her. (laughs) (laughs) Abigail gives our crew the tip that she's overheard Melville talking about Silene, that he misses Silene. This is apparently a moon that the bebop could actually fly to. Melville has said, quote, the real world hurts. So there's something desirable or otherworldly about Silene as a place where this outcast might want to hide or go. Faye's luck does turn around. She has the poker chip from the original crime scene in her pocket. And this is where Faye does let me down a little bit. I was just complimenting her 20 seconds ago. I think it's weird that she just forgot she had apparently hundred k in her pocket.
0: Yeah, I, <laughs> isn't it like $1,000 or something? <laughs> yeah, they could have gotten supplies
1: and meals out of that. And she just doesn't realize that it's there. But I guess for the sake of the plot, moving exactly when we need it to move. I'll allow it. It's probably my, my biggest hiccup here, though, is that moment.
0: Jet promptly snatches it so that they can fuel up the bebop and I presume go to Silene. And that's where our plot with the crew ends. One compliment that I
1: want to give these
0: last few pages
1: is that when the syndicate finds a Melville, I love the costumes here. Did you notice these, Jamie? The live action is very literal about the syndicate's costumes in that everyone wears the same suit and that dash of red on the lapels is the same for every person. But here, the syndicate is imagined as wearing all black and the red can get apparently incorporated sort of wherever. So we see red accents on outfits like on collars or undershirts or as a stripe on a hoodie. There's even a guy in a trench coat. I am here for this version of the syndicate where it's less a uniform and it's more a color scheme, like whatever
0: your job is or however you're comfortable, dress to it. Just make sure there's a little red. That threw me off for a moment, but I do appreciate that kind of accent, if you will. I think that was my only indication that perhaps that this comic was created before the live action really solidified a lot of its ideas. Yeah, in the end,
1: I just prefer it. I think the Red Dragons look a little bit weird in the Netflix version because those few times we see other gangs or other families, their outfits are so much more diverse that the idea that these people all managed to get the same suit tailored, it's always felt a little weird. So
0: I like this choice. I would normally agree with you, but if you have Caliban leading your syndicate, I think he'd want a uniform.
1: That's fair. Maybe he pays for all of it personally. He's like, here's your tuxedo money. It's a stipend. <laughs> we get the Vicious name drop. Uh, vicious is one of the characters introduced inside the front cover but this sort of hint that he's pulling the strings is the only other time we hear about him. I don't necessarily know if I like how necessary Vicious is. It really took a monster of the day or a bounty of the day story and made it about Vicious again. But I know you're a Vicious fan.
0: That threw me for a loop. Um, I think this is the first time where we get a self-contained bounty story that involves Vicious at all. Vicious is usually never related to any of the bounties in Cowboy Bebop, and the fact that he's has a stake or interest in whatever this bounty's carrying kind of threw me off. I think the two instances I can even recall the syndicate being related to bounties were Asimov's story and uh, the story at the end of the original manga uh, in which we have that hyperspace, the Black Gates card. And Outside of those contexts, I just don't see Vicious being a main character in those kind of ordeals. You know, like it or not, I
1: do think this matches the Netflix intention, because if you recall, Le LeFou also ends up a Vicious story where it wasn't before. That assassin who used to be sort of a random one-off is now bankrolled by Vicious. So I think it matches, even though it's not my favorite. Agreed. Our story concludes with the Bebop crew flying off to Silene. We're going to get a little hint from the writer himself about what that means in a moment. But before we do, I'm just going to admit that I do not get the implications of the very last image here. We see Fusao watching the Bebop crew leave. I couldn't figure out if he was kind of spying on them because he was syndicate or if they were trying to say something else because he's not dressed like one of the Red Dragons. He's just standing there being really
0: shifty. Oh, no, he's a baddie. (laughs) He's got to be affiliated with Visha somehow. I know a baddie, but like a baddie on his own or a vicious baddie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess we'll have to read the next issue to find out. Ah, dang, cliffhangers. I guess you're right. And it doesn't come out
0: until March. Yeah, it's quite some time. The initial publication for these episodes was listed sooner than that. I thought that issue two was going to drop before now. But it seemed like everything kind of got scaled out after the Netflix cancellation. Who knows? This is the time of a pandemic and resources have changed. So I am excited to purchase the last three and figure out what the end of the story is going to be. But I also think there's a larger conversation to be had here in regards to the cancellation. Lauren, this issue gave me hope that maybe we'll see some of the season two ideas that we're stewing as comics. And I would love to buy those. I think that would be an excellent kind of next life for what we didn't get to see.
1: Yeah, I'm a real sucker for any media that is canonically connected to something that was incomplete in its original form. I think we mentioned before that Firefly had a very successful continuation as canonical comics. For all of the people who were in love with those characters and wanted to see more of them, that became available. And I think that is a reasonable thing to hope for. We don't have any intel on that, though, just to be clear.
0: The other thing that happened with this comic drop, because it happened so late after the cancellation, is there hasn't been much talk about it on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, Honestly, the last three or four weeks have been a lot of like moshi moshi shit posting that I personally cannot stand. Uh, It's actually been a detractor to these communities that I have found very useful in the past and kind of welcoming. It seems like everyone went into troll mode over the last six weeks, and I, I don't know. I got to step away.
1: Yeah, I am equally disappointed. There are these two conflicting camps right now, the people who see the 150,000 signature petition as this beacon of hope and are really clinging to it. And the people who are just doing Moshi posting, as you say, because they've decided unilaterally that everything related to this project sucks and can never be good. I posted a photo of my dog Junebug holding the comic book on our Insta, and someone was like, I hope that dog ripped that book apart And I don't think that person has read the comic. They couldn't have this quickly. And so there really is just almost this poison, like it's over now, nothing good is yet to come, which is why I was so pleasantly surprised that I liked this so much and I want to read more. I really encourage our listeners to keep trying to experience new Cowboy Bebop stories because especially for $4, you can't go wrong knowing how rooted in the anime this one is. You might like something if you don't judge it prematurely. So
0: that wraps our conversation of the issue itself. Let's dive into the actual production of it with Dan Waters.
1: All right, all you bounty hunters in the solar system, we're here with another awesome interview. Who better to talk about the comic book issue number one than the writer? Please welcome Dan Waters.
2: Hi, thanks for thanks for having me.
1: We're so excited that you're here. Dan, please tell us where you're joining us from.
2: Uh, I'm in London.
1: Thanks for making the time, adjusting your calendar.
2: Uh, no problem. Thanks for, for recording at a... Uh... Civil civil Hour, uh, a lot of Americans
1: name. So at the time of this recording, Cowboy Bebop number one has only been out for a few days. By the time our listeners at home are hearing this, it will have been available for quite some time. Congratulations on this project.
2: Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one we're very excited about.
1: So for any listeners hoping to break into this industry and be just like you, how does one become a comic writer? How did you sort of connect with Titan and with Cowboy Bebop?
2: Oh, man. Becoming a comic writer is one of those weird sort of career paths where you have to either really want it or accidentally fall into it totally by accident um, because there's no sort of set way into the industry other than making some comics that then people like and therefore they uh, publishers notice that and they and they pick you up for things and that's what happened with my my first comic. Um it's a book called Limbo and Titan was actually one of the first publishers that that took any notice of me. And that was quite a few years ago. Um I did a few things for them early on and then came back around um they, they emailed me about Bebop and I wasn't doing very much sort of like license work at that point it was too cool a project to, to, to not, not do.
0: So
1: it's not exactly a nine to five job. What would you say a day in the life is like?
2: Oh man. I mean, it, def- I mean, totally depends, but you know, you, you, you very much can like wake up at noon, but <laughs> then that just means you're working until uh, two or three in the morning, most of the time, um, which ends up happening anyway. Cause I work with quite a few uh, American publishers. So it, it has the, Capacity to turn you into if you're if you're on this side of the pond, it turns you into a bit of a night out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not that exciting day today. It's it's more the thing of like you know getting through enough emails to be able to sit down and then actually do this, do the the part that's meant to be the job, which is which is writing stories. And you know, it's the best job in the world. I wouldn't trade it for a thing.
0: So you have a long history for writing for DC, including Superman, Batman, House of Whispers, Lucifer, and more. What does it take to write for such well-established characters?
2: I mean, I guess it, it's, it's similar it's similar to picking up uh, the bebop characters, which is you can sort of feel all these uh, eyes over your shoulder kind of waiting for you to uh, <laughs> uh, either deliver or mess up. And I think the most important thing really is is to put that all in a box and um, file it away somewhere and not think about that at all when you're dealing with these characters. I like I like writing these kind of characters because... They, they're sort of already established archetypes and you don't have to put in all the groundwork of like making it clear on the page who this person is necessarily and stuff. That stuff, that groundwork's already done, especially with characters like Superman or Batman or whatever. You, we, we understand these worlds and how they work. So you have this shorthand to just go in and, and tell a cool story, which doesn't need all of this exposition. You don't need to spend time explaining why a man can fly and, and all this kind of stuff, which you would if you were doing it from scratch. So yeah, that, that's that's the real joy of it for me. It's like taking these archetypes and either either twisting them a bit or or leaning into it or it's it's almost like um writing myth.
0: So that must be a very challenging kind of line of work where you have to balance your freedom and interest in the story you want to tell with the must from the publisher and what the character's like. Do you have any specific strategies you employ while writing?
2: Um what in terms of of getting away with stuff? <laughs> um I guess uh, I don't know. I, I tend not to. I try try not to think too much about about any of that stuff. I, it's always the, the the ethos I sort of live by is is that if something is genuinely interesting to me, then it should be to other people. And I'm always looking for what is within that character or what that character can kind of say about whatever I'm interested in at the time or or whatever interests me about them. Um, so it, it doesn't. You don't tend to have too much. Trouble in terms of stories being mandated down to you from, from on high, that's not something I'd be particularly interested in doing either. Uh, it's more about doing things that feel inherently true to the, to the thing that you're doing, which isn't a compromise so much as just doing your job well.
1: So Cowboy Bebop isn't the only adaptation you've done. You also have your name on Assassin's Creed and Dark Souls. Though you've written original stories too, like Homesick Pilots, how would you say adaptation differs from original story writing?
2: The difference between writing, I guess the difference between writing original stories and writing existing properties is the direction you approach the story from. So it's the difference between sort of having something inherently that you want to say and that you want to build a, a world around like a, an idea and looking at something which already exists and trying to find the thing that is interesting to you there and that, that you think hasn't yet been kind of explored and hasn't been uh, interrogated. So that's, yeah, that, that's that's always the direction I want to approach things from if I'm, if I'm doing anything licensed because it's, uh, it's how I think you get the most interesting stories out of it. Uh, and it's how you hopefully get something that hasn't been sort of explored before. Again, without undermining the thing and, and sort of creating something which doesn't actually feel like the, the franchise you're working in, which which to me is is pretty important. You know, you're writing for that audience for people who already have a love for the thing. And if you've if you like the thing enough that you've picked up the project, then that should be you too. so it should be as true to the spirit of the thing as you can make it.
0: So you mentioned you heard about this Cowboy Bebop comic opportunity and you were intrigued by it. We want to know how much of a fan were you of the anime and of the source material you were given about the live action?
2: Yeah, I mean, the uh, the live action hadn't been, you know, it wasn't out yet. There wasn't anything I could I could watch at the time I was writing the comic. So I was I was very much going off the anime, uh, literally a couple of set pictures, and um, I think I the scripts for the first three episodes. Um but other than that, like the the, the established world, I, I lent on the anime and I've always been a really big fan of that. It's between that and, and Samurai Shampoo, I think some of the best and most subtle storytelling that, that is kind of out there. Um, and it's it's something which I know a lot of other writers as well, rewatch and study and sort of pay real close attention to. There's like something about the about the way it approaches story where it doesn't force the threads through every single episode and that lets them hit harder when they do land. stuff like like vicious and uh, all of the, all of their backgrounds really
1: i'm so intrigued to hear you explain where in the live action production process you came in which is basically not at all Because I did feel like there was a strong anime voice in this story. I was surprised by how much closer, in my opinion, some of this sounded to the original than the live action. Is there anything more you can tell us about just how you got this gig and how the story sort of came to be, knowing how little of the Netflix you were exposed to?
2: Um, I mean, yeah, so so originally I was... You know, I was just approached and asked if I'd be interested in... Well, first I was asked if I liked Cowboy Bebop. I said yes. And then I was asked, you know, would you be interested in in writing a comic based on this new live-action version that's going to be coming out? And I said, let me think about that for a minute. Because, again, Bebop is kind of intimidating in a way that I don't really feel with Superman or Batman or any of those. Just because there's so much content with those characters out there already. Whereas Bebop is like 26 basically perfect episodes in a movie. Contributing to that is 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 a little bit intimidating, and yeah, I guess I guess the part of the reason it probably has a bit of an anime vibe to it is that we are working in a very different medium to to television. We we're doing this four issue series, and so my process there was go okay, well, essentially we're we're telling a, a lost episode, and in the same way that a lot of the anime episodes are, this should be something which stands entirely alone, doesn't need a whole lot of explanation, doesn't need a whole lot of background. It's just, you've got, you know, you've got the crew of the Bebop, their fridge is empty, <laughs> their pockets are empty, and there's an interesting bounty for them to go chase.
0: So I noticed immediately uh, the little gag at the start of issue one is uh, we get this kind of mental projection of Tank. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we walk into the casino, someone says, uh, it's time to blow this scene. And instantly, that music came to mind. Was that kind of requested by the publisher or the Netflix creators, or was that an original idea?
2: Yeah, no, that was me. That was that was the first. That was the first idea I had. Uh, was I wanted to? Yeah, I wanted to work tank into the first pages.
0: So, what other personal style or motifs or things did you get to inject into the story?
2: Oh man, that's a that's a big question. I don't know. I think I think my stories have a a through thread. You could probably recognize it to me, but hopefully not to the point where it overrides what, what Bebop is. I wanted it to very much feel like a, like a Bebop story. Um, I mean, this, this, the crux of the story is all based around luck and manipulating luck, which uh, I, think is, I think is an interesting thing to explore in the context of these three characters who don't have that much luck going for them, generally speaking.
1: I'm happy that you kind of brought that up because superheroes that affect probabilities whether we're talking about a domino or a wanda i i really like that concept and i was just shocked that it hadn't come into bebop yet because luck is so important to all of these characters um i know it's only four issues but are there any other sci-fi or supernatural uh concepts that you're excited to introduce in upcoming issues
2: yeah we i mean i guess i guess it's not too I mean it's, it's a bit of a spoiler if, if you haven't read the issue yet but they're, they're heading off to another to, to a moon at the end of issue one and that's something I think is is uh, is gonna be really fun to explore where a moon where the atmosphere affects people's personality so that's I think gonna be fun
1: we did establish that it's a, a spoiler filled podcast so feel free yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Not to bring the room down, but we were wondering how the Netflix cancellation impacted the production schedule for this comic.
2: I mean, from my end, I was done. There's four issues, so I read an issue a month, so I, I was I was far out ahead. To be honest, um, we had we had a few delays, but that was that was mainly just because of COVID and sort of uh, the the search to find an artist uh, took a little bit longer than than was originally maybe expected. Approvals and things can always take quite a while when you're dealing with something of this scale. Um, you know, getting likeness approvals from from the from the actors and, and and all of these kind of things. They all they're all part of the the wheels that have to turn in time for for something to hit a release date. So yeah, the the cancellation hasn't affected us in any significant way, really.
1: So the artist that they chose was Lamar Matherin mm-hmm. and. He's very active on uh, Instagram, especially showing progress on some of these panels and getting excited, spreading hype for the release. (laughs) We were going to ask, you know, what was the collaborative process like with him? Did you get to pass stuff back and forth? But it sounds like you might have been finished. Tell us more about that.
2: On my end. So the scripts, the scripts were written. I think the scripts were all written before Lamar came on board and Lamar was, uh, was someone that I, I I actually suggested for the book. I, I think he's phenomenal. Um, and I thought his style would be a perfect sort of cross between feeling very, very bebop. It has, you know, just oozes style, but it doesn't look like he's copying anything from, from the anime. It doesn't look like he's overly indebted to, to, to what's come before. So it, it kind of, at least in my mind, it feels, it feels very, very bebop while also Establishing that this is our version of 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 that. I mean, he's he's still working on it now, um, and we uh, he he messages me like almost almost every day. Really, he's always sending me uh, progress shots and, and art, and we'll we'll talk back and forth. He's been he's been a real delight. Like, I mean, like I, th- I think it's pretty obvious from his Instagram. He's a he's a super fan of, of Bebop, so it's been really cool just watching him um, play in that world.
1: There are also so many variant covers, like. <laughs> To me, what seems an extreme amount for a four-issue run. Do you have a favorite one of those that's coming out? Oh,
2: man, I couldn't. (laughs) That's going to get me in trouble with everyone else.
1: They're all your favorite.
2: Exactly.
1: (laughs) Uh, Finally, if we're doing sort of a spoilerific interview here, this comic does introduce some new characters to the Bebop universe. We not only have our bounty, but there's a contact that Jet has within the police. Where did these characters come from? You know, what, what inspiration did you take to create them? And are there going to be more?
2: Yeah, there's definitely a few more. Yeah, Melville is the big, uh, the sort of, I guess, the, the white whale of, of the story in terms of he is the bounty uh, that they're after. He's wearing a vest, which may or may not uh, impart uh, endless luck on, on whoever wears it, uh, something he created and something the syndicate very much wants. Um, and he was a lot of fun to, to sort of come up with and a lot of fun for Lamar to design. I think we wanted to really sort of lean into that classic sort of bebop foil for, for Spike in terms of his, you know, we wanted a little bit of, um, Asimov in there, a little bit of, um, vicious that, that, that sort of vibe of someone who, who could take Spike on toe for toe, both in, uh, combat and in coolness. But also what, what sort of has turned out is is that he's actually a really good foil for uh, Faye as well because of her um, incredible, spectacular failure to be lucky in any regard, um, particularly when it comes to uh, cards and things. He, he is, you know, the polar opposite of her. Uh, and that's been a lot of fun. I've been writing interactions between them.
0: I'm personally a fan of Abigail in issue one. Uh, just a very you know colorful but unassuming character that Jet gets to have a moment with along with Ein and Zizi and I really appreciate that you brought that kind of tone and texture to the comic it gets to sit a little while whereas maybe the live action doesn't do that as frequently
2: oh thank you yeah yeah I mean that that, that was always an important part of the show for me as well Was was that it had the patience and the sort of trust to uh, to let you sort of sit and and just have moments with these characters. I did a I did a list for previews. World, well, the uh, comic magazine recently asked me to to list a few of my favourite episodes of the anime, and one that made it onto the list, which I which I think maybe people did not expect, was uh, Ganymede which is such a quiet episode in in terms of Bebop. You know, there's no uh, there's no psychic TV monster, there's no fridge monster, there's no um, insane floating clown, but you really it it really just kind of doesn't quite take the emotional turns you expect it to. And I think that's the moment. I think on my first watch through, that was the moment where I was like, oh, okay, I'm watching something that's a little bit different and a little bit special uh, in terms of how it's going to play out.
1: You know, regarding Abigail, I also just love the implication in your writing that dog lovers or people who dogs love back must have something good within them. That's really (laughs) precious.
2: (laughs) Especially in uh, someone like us.
1: So we've really enjoyed our time with you today. Um, You're obviously working for so many different companies. You have so much coming up. If you wanted our listeners to see more of your work or catch up with you online, what would you like them to look at or where would you like them to go?
2: Uh, In terms of work I've got coming out at the moment, I'm writing a book at Image called Homesick Pilots, which I think should be up the street of of people who uh, who, who are into things like bebop. It's about teenage punk bands who end up piloting a haunted house as a mecca, essentially, is the the, uh, very succinct (laughs) logline for that one. Um, I'm also doing a book at DC called uh, Arkham City. Um, The Order of the World, which is about the escaped inmates from Arkham Asylum. And that's been really cool. Um, It's been a cool opportunity to sort of uh, dig into some really underutilized and and underloved characters uh, like the Ten-Eyed Man and Dr. Phosphorus and all of these kind of things. In terms of finding me online, I am at DanPGWatters on both. Uh, twitter and instagram but i'm a little bit more active on twitter generally speak
0: thanks so much for your time today dan we're looking forward to issues two three and four coming out by summer i believe and then a compendium too right the whole thing will be uh spun off into its own book
2: yeah it'll be it'll be collected in a trade paperback um later in the year i would assume and yeah thanks thanks so much it's been a it's been a real pleasure talking cheers sticker
0: Thanks again for joining us today, listeners. We're so pleased to talk about the comic, and we cannot wait to discuss next week's episode, Blue Crow Waltz with Molly Moriarty. Molly is the actress behind Kimmy Black, and she'll be
1: here with her mom. Look forward to it. Thank you for listening to The Bebop Beat. If you like our show, please rate us on Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Instagram and Twitter at Bebop Beat. Our email address is
0: bebopbeatpodcast at gmail.com. The Bebop Beat is hosted and produced by Jamie Sanchez and Lauren Fates. Our editor and associate producer is Angela Geis. Our logo and art assets are by Kat Janda.